You know, I gotta be honest, I was half expecting this to be a lamentation walking into it. I didn't remember much about it. In fact, what I remember most about it were the bad parts, the parts that really pissed me off. And they still do. They still do. But then there's the rest of the episode, which was just kind of boring. You'd think for an episode which is calling back to Pajem and actually following through on continuity and actually having consequence for actions would be the kind of thing I'm down for. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is ultimately why, while I am pro-continuity, I am pro-good storytelling more than anything else. Continuity by itself is not enough. It needs to be good. It needs to be something that is well done. That's just kind of how I tend to think of things. So this is a direct sequel. We see the consequences, such as they are, of the Pajam incident. We find out that the monastery was wiped out. But, but, the Andorians did give them time to evacuate. Now, that was probably to make the Andorians less the bad guys, and to make Archer more right. But the truth is, if we're being honest, from an in-character perspective, that was probably being done because, you know, they didn't actually want to start a shooting war with the Vulcans. Anywho, <clears throat> so this then leads to Saval and Forrest just buttheads for a bit, and the Vulcans decide to end joint fleet operations. You know what my reaction was to that? That's it? Sure, that, that was my knee-jerk reaction. That's all? That is positively restrained, which I suppose makes sense for Vulcans, but honestly... This could easily be a call for ending all ties or alliance with the humans in general. Just kind of kicking them out of the alliance completely. Now, there's obviously some politics going on here, and I want to share a comment that Miss Blaylock commented on where she related the Vulcans to the Catholic Church. Now, I'm mostly speaking historically here because I don't touch on modern politics with the 10-foot pole. But it is interesting to note that, historically speaking... Well, the Catholic Church is supposed to be about, you know, God and Christ and good and being decent, right? Like, that that's kind of what you get from that, right? Uh, love thy neighbor, you know, stuff like that. You'd think that, right? And yet history has shown many times that the Catholic Church was really just all about politics. That it was just another political institution. Now, again, I'm not speaking now, nor am I speaking about religions in general. I'm just sharing together the idea of what she mentioned, because this is exactly her point, that it was supposed to be this good thing, but power and you know, political power and corruption had seeped in to turn it into something just like anything else. Just another political entity on the board, which is how she is describing the Vulcans. Because if you think about it, the Vulcans are the good guys, right? I mean, th that is kind of how they tend to be portrayed. In fact, Vulcans tend to be, or at least generally tend to be, thought of as the good guides more than any other race in all of Star Trek, including humans. So, you, you see the lineup there of why that parallel is being utilized, and it's an interesting one, and could lead to some very fascinating topics and thoughts, which naturally we will not be doing until Season 4. So, the monastery is lost. They, they pull back on joint fleet operations. Um... We also find out that they're going to re re withdraw to Paul. Uh, actually, let me let me circle back around to that. Because I want to mention one thing. 
There's this bit where Archer says, yeah, no, no, you can't come down, Trip. Sorry, I need Hoshi. You know, ugh, just in case, right? I can only bring a few people down. and They've got this great engineering stuff, though. Man, and apparently they can go warp seven. It's, it's fantastic. Based on evidence both within the episode and within the franchise as a whole, I just want to mention something, because this is one of those things that we as fans and theorists have to do, and analysts as well. We have to decide whether something is actually legit, or if it's just something that someone's saying. And there's a huge gap of difference between those two things, because if these people, the uh, Caridons, I think Corridons, Corridons, if they actually have Warp 7 now which is uh, insane on many levels, it, it, it begs the question of why they aren't in a state or position that they should be later, and why it'll be many, many years until Journey to Babel, actually, where it's a plot point that they are being considered for entry into the Federation. Now, so if that, star if that Warp 7 thing was legit, then what we have is bad writing, because that's stupid. But if what we have is the idea that this is just him messing with Tucker in-universe, then it's just him messing with Tucker, and now we can excuse it. And this this little equation that I just ran through very briefly is something that I have had to go through for, oh, God, since I was a kid. Since I was talking about Star Trek on the playground with my friends. This is such a, a long-standing thing. And I'm sure a lot of you understand this exact same equation, right? Not just with regards to Star Trek, with any long-standing franchise. What happens on screen isn't necessarily always codified canon, because sometimes they're lying or misinformed, or they're just saying something to get across a point, or they're slanted or they're biased or whatever, right? And there's just plenty of reasons for why things are not necessarily canon, and that, that equation should come up. And I just wanted to mention that, because... I heard the Warp 7 thing, and I was just like, oh, come on, he's got to be messing with him. There's no way. Anyways, so, now we get to the part where they're like, okay, we're taking T'Pol away. Quick side sidebar here. One of the things I've always felt Star Trek should be less afraid to do is to, yeah, is to move the camera, is what I call it. And it's easiest to explain this by using an example, because Deep Space Nine did this. In fact, they did it twice. Once during the Dominion War arc, around the beginning of Season 6, end of Season 5, I think. And, you know, God, what is the name of that episode? You know, Sacrifice of Angels, Favor of the Bold, and the lead-up to that? You know, like the nine-parter or whatever it was. Um... So that arc, and then the final arc, the finale arc, the, the lead-up to the last episode. Both of those two arcs are, I think, the only real times we've seen the camera move when it comes to Star Trek. That So the camera moving, just to continue explaining this, is the idea of the camera shifting away from the typical viewpoint, from the main protagonists, and allowing to show other perspectives. Now... You're probably thinking, oh, that's a meanwhile elsewhere then. Mm, no, a meanwhile elsewhere is when the camera hops over to Dukat or to Weyoun and shows what they're doing, the villains or the NPCs or whatever. A moving camera is when, to use a video game example, when the, you've got the party running around, and then thanks to story reasons, the party splits up, and so the camera bounces back and forth between the two parties, which are fully uh, 
divested from each other geographically at that point. So let's make... Star Trek is really, really, really hesitant to do that. In fact, uh, one of the things I've heard several times, although I was never able to uh, clarify this other than an interview by Berman, is that they wanted Season 1 of Enterprise to be Earthbound. Not the game. Bound on Earth. Stuck on Earth. So that they could... You know, have that be the build-up as they're slowly making the NX-01, and then its launch would be the lead-in to Season 2 kind of a deal. For the record, I think that's a great idea. Not only would that do, go a long way towards keeping budget concerns down, which was an issue, by the way, as it always is, but on top of that, it would have been something different, and there's a lot of storytelling potential with that, and it would have fulfilled that goal of keeping the tone down, down at ground level. I think that's a great idea. But instead we get this. <laughs> but another thing I think they could have been willing to do is to move the camera. Now what does that have to do with anything? Back in TNG's run, there was a bit where William Riker was offered a command post on some other ship. The Icarus, I think. I don't know. And it was like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe you should go and take that command post. And then Riker decided not to. Okay. My idea that I posited back then in the TNG, TNG ruminations... Sorry, I, why am I so tired? God. The TNG ruminations was maybe Riker should have done that. Maybe he should have just committed to it. And then periodically, either within an episode or having an entire episode devoted to, we could shift the camera over to Riker over on his ship, see some of his adventures and what he's going through. This could have then been a bit of a character arc that he undergoes throughout the course of Season 3 which would lead into Best of Both Worlds, where he has to come back and... Well, for those of you who don't remember, Best of Both Worlds Part 1 was all about Riker. Was he the kind of person who could take command and in the moment give that order without a moment's hesitation? Which he did. This is, of course, why Riker's character arc in the entire franchise basically ended with Best of Both Worlds Part 1. After that, he didn't really move anywhere character-wise. Now, this could, of course, be solved by having him go back to his command and effectively leave the show, and then Jonathan Frakes is not on camera several times because Riker's off over there, and then they find Thomas Riker. And then they effectively have what is a brand new character played by the same actor who is now playing a sort of, but effectively different character, and then they could go in a different direction with that one. In short, TNG accidentally had the pieces fully in place to really do something with Riker across like three or four seasons and instead decided to do absolutely nothing because status quo. Now, what does this have to do with this episode? To Paul is being recalled. Yeah, you already see where I'm going with that, don't you? One of the things that really caught my attention was there was this bit where Paul tells Archer, I was assigned here to be a representative for the interests of Vulcan. I have failed at that. This is probably the best explanation for why she doesn't fight the transfer, and indeed why she should be transferred. No, really. Because she isn't following the needs and wants of Vulcan High Command. Now, whether that's a good or a bad thing, well, that depends on some, some opinions, doesn't it? Since the Vulcans have been almost universally portrayed as the bad guys, including in this episode, 
by the way. The only reason that, uh, what's the name, Sopek comes across as reasonable as all is because he's played by Gregory Itzen, or Itzen, I never remember how to pronounce it. I've actually talked about him a few times before. He's a semi-regular guest star, and he's a, he's a good dude. I like him. He does some good stuff. Um, so he, he manages some uh, decency and charisma to his performance and actually does a good job of playing a Vulcan rather than the usual boring stuff we tend to get from this show. Because apparently Vulcans are now... Uh, I can't think of their names from Mass Effect with great surprise. And now, now every time I do this, all that is going to happen. My entire comment section is going to be people telling me their names. No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to subvert you on this one. I'm going to pre prevent you from doing this. I'm going to pause everything right now, and I'm going to just go look it up right now. Accidentally close a window. Didn't mean to do that. The Elcor. There we go. Okay, now you can't go into the comment section and say it's an Elcor, because I already looked it up. And I'm going to have to fix those windows later. All right, so... <clears throat> so, he does a decent job of that. But the Vulcans being portrayed antagonistically kind of doesn't really work here. You could have had her going back and seeing how different it is to work on a Vulcan ship and how maybe disinteresting it is. Well, there's a nice little bit where Phlox points out that Vulcan has tried many times to put a Vulcan on a, a human ship, and every time they have failed horrifically. Now, first of all, that doesn't speak well to the Vulcans. In fact, that's actually kind of disgusting when you think about it, that they couldn't do their job for longer than a month because they found it too horrific to work with humans. Like, I know we're bad, but really? No, T'Pol is the first one to actually break ground here and manage for longer than six months, I think, we're at at this point. There's also a great bit where Flock says, isn't it logical to indulge in a bit of pride for that? And she says, pride is a human indulgence. Uh, no, T'Pol, you have massive amounts of pride. That's probably why she reacts so strongly to that. Anywho, <clears throat> and, and we covered the pride thing before, so I'm not going to rehash that. But the point is, have her go back. Have her interact with the Vulcans, and it's all peaceful, right? It's very logical. It just lines up perfectly, and she's not mentally engaged in it anymore. There's no challenge. There's no task. It's just, it becomes routine and mundane. And to Paul, individually, realizes that she doesn't want that. She doesn't want mundane. She doesn't want routine. She wants to change and alter and do and grow. She wants to challenge her preconceptions. So, she starts to fight against that, and I'm not sure because I don't know season one or two of uh, Enterprise as well as I do with TNG, so I can't map out an arc for how this could then tie her to rejoining the crew, but that would be the overall impetus, is eventually she would rejoin the crew. I mean, at the very latest, by the time they go to the Expanse in season three. Something. But no... No, instead we look at this like, yeah, sure, she's leaving the ship. Uh-huh. Wink, wink. Yeah, and the main characters are going to get killed this episode. Wink. So, hmm. Uh, Archer kind of tries to read out, reach out to DePaul and kind of fails at it, but still kind of succeeds. I want to bring up Jessie Gender really quick. She's a 
awesome YouTuber. I've done some Star Trek things with her, and I've watched a bit of her stuff. Um, she tends to be a little more hard-hitting than I am, but also her focus tends to be more on the real-life implications rather than mine, which I'm mostly focusing from an in-universe perspective here, as well as the, the technical creation of the show thing. But I bring her up because she mentioned that she went through Enterprise somewhat recently from my perspective, which from the time this video came out would be over a year ago from your time. And binging it changed her perspective on it because Enterprise Season 1 and 2 still had its issues, and it certainly does. But there's more tiny little character moments here and there. And she specifically mentioned to Paul, and I can't help but notice that she's absolutely right. Periodically, there's just these little tidbits and the closest thing to an actual character arc we have in the show in general so far is for T'Pol and her slowly becoming acclimated to the human way of doing things, but without losing her Vulcan self. Now, that's important. It's not like she's becoming more human. It's that she is changing what being Vulcan is for her. I-D-I-C. Because of the fact that now that she has this external stimuli, this chaotic stimuli, which is altering her from the routine and mundane and status quo, she now is changing her perspective and adjustment. She's still a Vulcan. She still speaks and acts and functions in a Vulcan manner. But you can see how now she is a different Vulcan than a Vulcan who is only surrounded by other Vulcans, right? And this has been a tiny little tidbit. Like I said, just tiny little things. I, I like to show evidence, so here's my evidence in this episode. When they're taking the shuttle pod down, Archer's like, you know what, maybe I should just take you back up. And she says, no, it would be illogical too. It would waste fuel to go back at this point. We're over halfway. In other words, to Paul, when she was used to Vulcans, or another Vulcan would say, yes, maybe you should take me back. I have a lot of work to do. But to Paul doesn't want to do that. She wants to be present for this mission. But she can't just say that. So instead, she decides to find a way to talk around saying that. She actually does that twice this episode here, once and once later in the sick bay. No, I can't go catch up. It would violate my doctor's orders. She comes up with a very logical excuse to do what she wants to do. I like to, as much as I call that an excuse, which by my own terminology means it's not valid, it's not a full reason. Nevertheless, I like to think that because she is a Vulcan, she needs something else. She needs an addendum. She needs a, a, an asterisk there to give her a excuse. She needs a Cassis belly, you know? Okay, hang on. Generate, generate, generate. Okay, okay, I got one. I got one. Now I can do what I actually want to do because we, we don't actually care about this, you know, the fact that you secretly pushed up against this other kingdom and now in so doing you have violated the terms of Roman law. That's not what we care about. That's our excuse. What we care about is going to war and conquering your people. <laughs> so, you could see the parallels here. T'Pol is definitely trying to conquer Enterprise. Wait. Oh, God, there's probably a fanfic about that. Don't, don't. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear if there is. Let's move on. So, they start to land, and they're attacked by a fighter jet. I had a random thought. The shuttle pod certainly seems to be decent, and it can take, you know... Decent pressure, you know, went to the gas giant, which is stupid. And it's got plasma weapons of some sort. It's not quite a fighter. And I found myself wondering what a Tomcat would do against that thing. I actually don't know. I'm not that familiar with the physics of how a fictional metal would interact with a real-life, you know, series of warheads. But it's just, just food for thought. Anyways. <clears throat> so they're captured. Yay! This then, up until now, I've actually been with the episode. Really. 
there's been some interesting politics that aren't discussed, but that's more of a, oh, well, that would have been cool, but we're not doing it thing, you know, the Voyager effect, rather than anything actually bad about the episode. But then the episode decides to piss me off. So first, we find out that the Chancellor tells them, you know, don't give them anything, don't negotiate, whatever you do. And, uh, you know, and they're like, okay, so we need to... We need to go down. We need to, we need to launch a rescue mission. We need to figure out how to rescue our captain. We're going to do everything in our power. And then they're contacted by the Vulcan, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Edson I mentioned earlier. He plays Sopak. And he says, hey, how are things? And they're like, what? He's like, hey, so, yeah. Um, we are, we're going to help. You know, we're totally going to be helpful here. It's going to be cool. Uh, we're going to take over this operation in order to try and better deal with it because we have more experience with this and we're probably better equipped to do so than you. So then they go over to actually be, be like, hey, maybe you know we should coordinate on this. Can you give us any information on this? At every step of the way, the crew, mostly Tucker, is just fighting against Sopek tooth and nail to the point of being actively rude, like international incident-causing levels of rudeness. Also, uh, Sopek insists that they send a rescue effort, which then makes Tucker very upset, of course, and the whole Enterprise crew. The whole bridge crew is on with this, because screw you because you're the Vulcans. You're wrong because you're the Vulcans. Ignore the fact that they were thinking about a rescue effort themselves earlier. Then Sopek says we're not negotiating, to which they're like, oh, even if it would save lives. Um, so the negotiate with terrorists thing is actually a horrifically gray morass of black which, honestly, I'd rather not cover. And to be frank, TNG already did a way better job of this over on the high ground. One of my favorite parts about that rumination is actually how many of you disagreed with me in the comments section. That's not a joke. I had a lot of people disagree with me in that episode, which is awesome, because it meant we actually had points we could discuss and elaborate on. By contrast, in this episode, it's made abundantly clear that the crew are right even when they change their own positions and what they're pushing for, and the Vulcans are in the wrong. There's even a bit later in the episode where the Vulcans attempt a rescue attempt, which probably would have succeeded based on all that we see, and in so doing, uh, effectively get in the way of the Andorian... Oh, yeah, by the Andorians in this episode. The Andorian rescue attempt. It sure would have been nice to know about that and, you know, kind of coordinate, right? No, that's nonsense. we got to be all pissy. <sighs> right. So, they're obstinate and irritating, and frustrating, and stupid. Then Archer gets eight seconds of T'Pol's breasts being shoved into his face. I counted. I'm sure Jolene Blaylock is a very attractive woman, but... What? <sighs> Allow me to elucidate on something. I, this actually came up recently from my perspective, obviously, so last year, about a game I was reviewing. I don't remember which. Don't ask me. And I said, oh, Shantae. It was Shantae. If you're going to be fan servicey, do it. If you're going to have sexy people on your show and try to be all, hey, hey, do it. Embrace it. Be overt and honest about it. What irritates me is usually when a game pulls a Metal Gear Solid Five, which, for those of you not aware, has a woman wandering around in a bikini because she needs to breathe through her skin. 
that's obviously why she basically goes through this whole thing where she effectively has an orgasm while taking a shower and constantly poses in sexy manners because she needs to breathe through her skin. No, the reason why is because they want fan service, but they can't just do it. They have to make an excuse for it. And now you see why this relates to this episode. I, I admit I don't want Star Trek to go full fan servicey. I know, I know, Star Trek's always had the sexy in it. I've said that many times. TOS, you know. But if you're going to do it, do it. Just embrace it. And don't try this weird backwards excuse thing because we wanted to have a reason for why Archer and T'Pol grope each other for almost two solid minutes before finally plunk. That's just juvenile, to be blunt. And to be perfectly frank, I would like to think that Star Trek is better than that. Obviously, I am mistaken. <sighs> What's funny is this is only the second iteration of this happening. The first was the decon chamber way back in, I think, Broken Bow? Yeah, I think it was a Broken Bow. And then we have this. And what's funny is both do the same thing in the exactly the same wrong manner. It's a big excuse to have big, you know, the, the long, short takes on exactly how sexy they are. Both Tucker and Paul. And then this episode with the groping and then the face palming. That's not the palm. Face puppying? I don't know what to call that. Plonk! There, that's what we're going to call that. <laughs> God. Now, I mentioned this because this is the biggest thing I remember about this stupid episode, was that how much that pissed me off. Now, what's good is now that we've got the humanity being stupid and the Vulcans are evil and the dumb fan service out of the way, we can go back to the episode actually being worth it to him. I'm sorry, I, I did this a little bit out of order because the next thing I mentioned here in my notes is that the shantytown, because there's a shantytown, we got to show that this government is corrupt. That's very important because we'll never discuss it again. And then they talk about how they demand weapons, which they don't even have. And then the Vulcans are not helpful, and then he wants to rescue them, and they want to negotiate, and they refuse to share. And Hoshi literally pulls the static gag, and at 30 minutes in, finally we have Shran in the episode. And miraculously, the episode starts to get better. I'm not actually joking. Not just because Shran's in it, because now they've gotten over the stupid, and now it's like, okay. Shran insists that the Vulcans are preparing for war. Huh. Then, uh, they do this rescue op. Reed has to point out that Tucker doesn't have his gun. The Vulcans attack. There's bad coordination. Shran actually gives the scanner back. Nice little moment. Here, this is yours. And, quick side note. Shran mentions he can't get a good night's sleep. I'd like to think that's an exaggeration or, you know, a metaphor. Because I'm all for other cultures, but the idea of Shran being neurotic enough to literally not be able to sleep because he's in debt to someone is stupid. Just to say this as bluntly as I can. In fact, I hate to point this out, but in the future, Shran will be in debt to Archer several more times, and then vice versa, so I'm not sure if that should be taken as red. Once again, we have to judge whether or not what he says is something that is literally a part of canon, or whether it's just a random comment. I mean, if I say my feet are killing me, I don't mean that literally, do I? Or if I say an episode's making me tear my hair out, 
evidence notwithstanding, I don't mean that literally. So I think I could argue that he's not literally failing to get sleep. This is just, that's kind of his excuse, right? Because he has this very grudging respect for Archer in person and a growing respect for T'Pol, and that that will be a thing that comes forward in the future in, like, 40 episodes. God, he's Shran's not going to be back for a while. I'm just going to tell you that right now. He's got to show up in season two, though, doesn't he? Ah, whatever. Point being. Point being. No, he does. He shows up in season two, episode 15. I remember that now. Because we'll be covering that in January. Anyways, I don't think he meant that literally, and I sure hope he didn't, because if he did, that's even stupider than I'm already giving this episode credit for. So then, T'Pol is horrifically injured. No, it's it's just a sympathy point. She's fine. He Archer is just trying to play on Sopek's sympathies in order to gain an ally in the political infrastructure of Vulcan. Okay, I'm kind of with that. And then the episode ends, and T'Pol says, because of course she does, because pad ending. I suppose this isn't really a pad ending. It's not as bad as I was thinking. This is a, you know, return to status quo ending because of freaking course it is. I want to talk about something. I know I'm done with the episode, but you'll notice I didn't bring up the politics of this episode at all because the episode doesn't bring it up. What we have here is a fascinating and engaging topic which could easily fill multiple episodes, both as a foreground and a background story point. Vulcan interventionism. Now, let me jump in really quick here. Interventionism is almost always portrayed as a bad thing, probably because historically people misuse that. But all interventionism means, really, is when you decide to interfere with another country's affairs, either for international concerns or for your own concerns. That's what interventionism means. It is the diametric opposed governmental philosophy of isolationism where you think about your country and try to ignore other countries. And obviously both can go to extremes, just like most things can. So, now that we've defined that, once again, trying to not talk about modern politics, uh, there's plenty of interventionism to talk about over the course of the last um, thousand years. (laughs) Or two. Or three. We actually discussed interventionism extensively when it came to the modern warfare lore run, if you want to hear a larger discussion about that. The Vulcans are clearly practicing that, in general. They have diplomatic ties all over the place. They have trade deals. They have mining concessions. They are working with the government, the recognized government of this planet, in order to try and benefit from it. They're also willing to get involved when it comes to their internecine affairs. Now, in this case, they had a Cassus Belli. One of their own was taken. But the moment they have that excuse, they have absolutely no hesitation in immediately launching an attack in order to hurt a local cell or local member of whatever the revolutionary group is, of which there are apparently plenty. We also have a few little tidbits of the fact that the Vulcans are in charge of a corrupt, excuse me, are backing the corrupt government. But the only evidence we have of that corruption is the fact that they have class distinction, a.k.a. the same thing that you know, we have in real life uh, everywhere. Because there's the central city and then there's the shanty town. And we aren't actually shown the central city, but you know they reference it, like, I think, three times, uh, the economic divide there. I bring all this up because, again, the episode doesn't, but it should have. 
the idea of the Vulcans getting involved in lesser races, I, should, I say lesser, that's such a horrible word. Less developed, less involved in the galactic community. Because the whole point that I'm trying to reach here is that the Vulcans seem to be practicing a semi-regular approach of interacting with other races which are not yet a part of the galactic community in order to benefit the Vulcans. Interventionism. Now, I'm, again, as, as I mentioned before, and this is why I gave that preface, I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong, but it's interesting that the episode doesn't even begin to discuss whether or not that's wrong or right. It's just, well, it's wrong because it's the Vulcans, and that's pretty much the attitude that's taken here. Because Archer's right. I think they could have done so much with this concept, especially in this episode. Have T'Pol be, if you're not going to actually take her off the ship, have her be in directly and personally involved in whatever this revolution is. We don't even know what they're fighting for. Are they trying to supplant the local government? Is this a standard junta situation? Are, or are these people disenfranchised? Is this the beginning of a revolution? Is this an independence movement? We know nothing, because the episode doesn't even begin to discuss this. And I know I'm into politics, and I want more politics. That is to say, political intrigue in my Star Trek, and in my fiction in general. But that's because I'm into political intrigue, which I call it that because I think there's a difference between, you know, Game of Thrones and politics, right? But again, I'm getting off topic. I find they, they could have done something about how this is... Imagine if Earth had decided to back the idea of working with the Vulcans on this matter, so Archer had to grit his teeth and go along with the Vulcan command and basically follow Sopek's orders in order to rescue both DePaul and to salvage relations with the Coridians or whatever they're called. Why? Well, because this is then another step in Earth getting closer to Vulcan. As in, becoming more politically and diplomatically tied to Vulcan, trying to mend the fence of the fact that, yeah, hey, by the way, we cost you your spy facility and your, um, you know, your monastery. Sorry about that. Just the beginnings of that, which could be an arc. This could be a recurring thing. This could then, this actually is addressed in season two in the episode Transin, but again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, this could, they could have also gone the route where maybe the local government really is kind of dictatorially corrupt. Maybe there is a degree of rampant excess and waste in their economic system. But, because of the fact that they are the recognized government and are trying very hard to continue to produce XYZ resources, which are very valuable and useful to the Vulcans, the Vulcans back them. Which could say a lot of things about Vulcan's approach to other races. The idea that, at least at the Vulcan command level, Vulcan high command, which are almost universally shown as the bad guys in this show, hint, hint, season four, hint, hint. Um, sorry, spoilers. It'll come up again, that's all I'm saying. It'll, the Vulcan High Command being the bad guys will be a recurring trend in this show. And maybe the Vulcans in general don't really agree with what Vulcan High Command is doing. But you remember what T'Pol said a few episodes ago? Tradition. Uh, shoot, I wrote down the quote. Give me a second. See if I can find it. Uh, so we got the Flocks episode. Then there's the Time Travel episode. Hang on, hang on. Uh, nope. Before that. Another stupid episode. 
Oh my god, how long ago was this? Can't have been that long, right? Oh, here we go, here we go. Perfect. <clears throat> Our commitment to tradition outweighs personal choice. There it is, right there. Bam. It was uh, Breaking the Ice, which is a great DePaul episode. Maybe the Vulcans are so adherent to tradition that they must absolutely obey the, the wishes of high command, and most of them don't even think to question it because of said adherence to tradition, that we start to see the, let's call it what it is, the corruption in Vulcan society. Because all it would take would be for high command to be corrupt, for them to be self-serving or, you know, not good. <laughs> I hesitate to use the word evil, but you see the direction I'm leaning there. And because Vulcans live very, very long lives, this then actually makes things even more problematic than they would be if this was a human society. I mean, if I told you that the leading political elite were corrupt and self-serving and generally leaning towards evil, you'd be like, yeah, and? Now imagine if that particular group of elite was kind of new in being that, like they hadn't been that evil before. But not only are they now, but they're going to keep that office for another few hundred years because they're just going to stay in office, and everyone's just going to kind of go along with it. Think about that. And again, no real-life parallels. I'm thinking purely within the confines of Vulcan society, which, thanks to their long lifespan, leads to a few other issues that we don't really have in real life. So, <laughs> you can see why this could then really flesh out the episode. Oh my god, they're, the High Command told us to do this. And to Paul, then, of course, being someone who is trying to broaden and push her horizons to challenge her preconceptions, is someone who is now thinking huh, about the High Command. This could eventually lead to an actual conflict between T'Pol and High Command, which actually in Season 3 it does finally come up. But again, we're here in Season 1. Just food for thought. I'm just tossing out random ideas. I could probably come up with another 5 or 6 if I just sat here and kept talking, but I'm sure you don't want to hear that. I'm curious of your thoughts on this whole political quagmire, which they don't do anything with. Which is a darn shame. Oh well, let's go ahead and move on to the next episode, which I don't remember what it is, but either way, I'll see you next time.